This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Welcome to the Not Quite Daily Show, today discussing episode 7 of Land of the Lustrous. I said last time, it seemed likely that winter would not be business as usual for our gems, and that structurally, where we are in the story made this the right time for a major shakeup. Unfortunately, I also guessed that the frequent cliffhangers meant that any such crisis might materialize only at the very end of the episode. I don't know yet if this qualifies as a major shakeup, but leading off with Fos losing her arms between the ice flows certainly has that potential. It's likely a higher hurdle than the loss of her legs, too, as the number of people around to aid her is rather limited. I will do my best to speculate on how this will be addressed with several possible outcomes, perhaps all hilariously wrong, but that will be all the way at the end. Um, there is also a rather major addition to how I will look at the series going forward when we get to themes. My wariness toward external references that I mentioned last time has finally given way based on a few things in this episode. I'll explain it in full when we get there. It's probably the biggest single part of this video. And since it doesn't exactly go in any other section, I just want to point out how beautiful this episode is. The winterscapes and the generally reduced color palette work so well with the many scenes that lack dialogue. That sense of isolation and general melancholy that has pervaded the series already seems amplified in this setting, especially with so many of our characters offstage. The stillness of winter becomes the perfect backdrop for Fos's introspection, and the moments that are not still are amplified by contrast. It's possibly the most aesthetically pleasing episode to this point, and yet somehow that well suits the malaise which Fos must struggle with throughout. She's out of place in these winter months, just as she feels so out of sorts in her own mind. The episode is called Hibernation, with the implication of restoring and resting oneself, yet Fos gets nothing of the sort, perhaps just the opposite. Let's get started. Today's video includes the intro you just heard, then sections on goals, conflicts, characterization, world building, and theme, followed by what to watch for and speculation. Starting off with goals, we had a development this episode, or rather a lack of development, that relates to the tension we discussed in the last video, that Congo's goals may be in opposition. What's happened is that for the second time in the series, we had a situation where a certain outcome was set up as possible, it does not happen, yet the show draws attention to the fact that it didn't happen. In both cases, the lack of the hinted possibility helps us understand something about one of the characters. The first time this happened was when I was trying to predict what Ventricosis and the Lunarians might be up to with luring Fos away from the island. I suggested that using Fos as bait to lure the other gems away made a lot of sense, because this was way too much effort for a single gem, and it was a ruse that would only work once. 
In that next episode, then, you see Ventricosis start to reason out that Phos might work as a means to lure Cinnabar away, especially since she would likely act alone. But what actually happens is that Phos overhears. She pleads as best she can that Ventricosis do no such thing, and Ventricosis relents. She'll insist she can do no more, and the Lunarians will actually burn her arm off for her temerity. Thus, this road not traveled revealed something about Ventricosis, and it makes her later decision to return Phos rather than use her as a hostage seem consistent. Now we've come to the second time, and it's due to Kongo having cross-purposes. He has the goal of keeping the gem safe, but also the one about finding each of them a job, a purpose. Letting Phos join the fight fulfills one of these goals while endangering the other. So it seems that rebuking Phos, changing her job yet again, or somehow altering the situation will be necessary. Yet when we get to this episode, nothing like that happens. The gems and Kongo prepare for winter like normal. But Phos brings up the fact that she wasn't punished. No change was carried out. In fact, she says that this makes her so frustrated that she cannot sleep. Kongo's silence is unusual, perhaps deafening. While we don't yet know why Kongo has said nothing, this starts to give us some insight into his character. It would seem that having Fos continue trying to contribute is important to him in a way we don't yet understand, or that it may be more important than minimizing the risk to the other gems. This gets reinforced in this episode when she is allowed to stay awake and is instructed to join Antarcticite in her winter tasks. There is still some mystery here as to why Kongo has these priorities, but the fact that Fos draws attention to his silence means that a lack of action is important. It's not arbitrary. Of course, rather than an insight into Kongo's priorities, this may be a case of him actually behaving out of character, of being perturbed enough for it to affect his actions. Now, this is speculative, but the event that may have this potential would Fos's revealing that she'd learned something of humans. We have a moment this episode where Kongo is thoughtful in his consideration of the newly repaired table. I think it's a safe assumption that the exchange between Fos still weighs on his mind. It may be that he anticipated having until spring to think things through, as he had every reason to expect Fos would sack out with the rest. The potential threat her involvement represents may be something he didn't yet think he had to make a decision on. Encouraging Phos to join Antarcticite may be him just kicking the judgments down the road, or it may be that this tells us which goal for Kongo is the more important. Because of this inaction then, as far as Phos's goals go, she is technically still in the fight. When she dashes away from Amethyst after delivering her apology, or trying, she thinks, I gotta be able to run like this whenever I need to. She appears to want to improve her particular advantage of being able to flee and alert others. She is not thinking to herself that she is ill-suited for being in the fight, or asking to be released, or anything like that. Barring a decision from Congo, it appears this goal will continue to be in a state of fulfillment, with a little twist. Rather than it being a matter of a goal being met, or being dropped, or even the goal itself changing, we have a case of a goal shifting in priority. It used to be an end in itself, the thing that Phos wanted, but not so anymore. When she is recruited to aid Antarcticite in the winter duties, she pushes herself to live up to the responsibility. As she'll say, I don't want to, but I will. 
She is way out of her comfort zone and still striving forward, so she certainly hasn't given up on the goal or trying to live up to it. But over the course of winter, she has to face the idea that she really isn't well suited for fighting. It's not a simple matter of getting over the fear she felt in that first encounter, but a more honest look at her own capabilities. Comparing Antarcticite's ease in destroying the ice flows to her own struggles makes it rather plain, leading her to think that, well, Antarcticite can just take care of them all. Antarcticite's own frank appraisal of Fos to Congo will reinforce this sense of inadequacy. Where this becomes problematic is in the way Fos's goals have shifted. Joining the fight is no longer the thing Fos wants the most, but last episode she started to consider it as a stop on the way to the big goal of find a place for Cinnabar. She wasn't having success in the avenues she had explored, so perhaps this new job change could be the key. However, that feeling of inadequacy that we just discussed now has higher stakes than just falling short of her own wish. Now she is worried about what that inadequacy suggests about her hopes to save Cinnabar. It is just that worry that the voices of the ice flows are exploiting in their whispers at the end of the episode. Had she not heard the comment that it would be nice if her arms matched her legs, then that notion may have never made it into the ice flows' suggestions. While Fos did pull back from willingly sticking her arms in the water, she was only close enough to slip in because of paying at least some mind to this temptation. All of that only can happen because of the goal of find a place for Cinnabar taking over as her main driving force. Let us note, however, that the way she cannot even bring herself to interact with Cinnabar this episode says plenty about how far away she feels from achieving this goal. Her shame at the lack of progress, at least the way she understands her progress, should tell us plenty of its importance to her. In conflicts, we have a new threat and perhaps some complications for our cast without any real progress on our existing conflicts. Uh, they have a good opportunity to worsen next time due to how this episode ended, but we'll just have to wait and see if that's the case. Whatever else it may set up, all we know from this episode is that we have the new and immediate crisis of Fos's missing arms. There are a lot of obvious complications to this. Fos is, well, missing her arms. Brilliant analysis. And while this could just be a mild inconvenience in another scenario, the current context elevates it to a crisis in fact. Antarcticite described the danger of the ice flows earlier in the episode, saying that if you fall into the sea, you'll be ground to dust. That suggests that there will be no rescue mission for the missing arms. At the very least, it appears any recovery mission like we had with the giant snail will have to wait until the ice melts, if that is even an option. Another obvious complication is the associated memory loss. Losing her legs caused Fos to forget Jade's name and the soul-flesh-bone story and the connection to humans, and it appears that she has lost some other memories associated with that crisis. One thing that was made plain this time is that she doesn't remember some key details of her adventures with Ventricosis, including her name, even though when Ventricosis was in front of her, after the loss of her legs, she still recognized who she was. Assuming that isn't a plot hole, it suggests that she may be able to reconstruct some memories that she lost fragments of, so long as she has the right context. Perhaps it's like remembering the lyrics to a song, if you can hear the music, but struggling to do so otherwise. If the arms and the memories they contain are gone, whether it's just for the winter or forever, 
then it may be that Fos will forget other gems and maybe her own purpose if they are not right in front of her. Less of a problem if it was any other time of year, but during winter when the rest are hibernating, there seems to me a greater chance of her not being able to recall something very key. In fact, we may not even know what she has forgotten until winter is past. One other aspect of the missing arms and the circumstances under which it occurred is that Antarcticite may have to address this problem by herself. There is no Rutile and possibly no Congo to deal with the immediate aftermath. How will Antarcticite react to the lost limbs? Is she the type that tries to salvage them at cost to herself? Does she assume they are lost for all time? Does she blame Fos for her clumsiness and turn the whole ordeal back on her? banishing her to the room with the sleepers until someone else can take over? Or is she sympathetic to Fos, inspiring her to try remedying the situation? If so, could this end up complicating matters still further? We'll cover what we know about Antarcticite in the characterization section, and maybe some direction will suggest itself there. This new conflict is both a problem that needs to be solved and a potential catalyst for further complications or conflicts in the immediate future. There's no movement on my notion that Lunarians could change their normal behavior for this winter, but if they were to choose this moment of Fosa's crisis to attack, then it probably will not go as smoothly as it might have otherwise. Now, that's how things have changed this episode on the conflicts front, but I would like to point out that one thing that is not a new crisis is a Fos who is willing to do anything to get stronger. While she finds the Ice Flow's suggestion to give up her arms tempting, at the last moment she does snap out of it. She realizes that it's crazy, and as much as gaining arms to match her legs would help advance her goals, she is still a rational being. She may take more risks than is advisable, and it's how she got those legs in the first place, but she is not someone deliberately harming herself or others in pursuit of what she wants. That moment where she is tempted and yet backs out of it, even if the result is the same, prevents me from needing to add another new conflict to our board. Now, since we are talking about possible character conflicts anyway, let's just move on to our next section, characterization. In our last video, I pointed out the pattern of introducing new secondary characters one or two at a time, often having a whole episode or two to help us get acquainted with the newcomer before moving on to someone else. This pattern inspired a new way that I have considered looking at the series, which I will discuss in theme, because, of course, the pattern repeats here in Episode 7 with Antarcticite, who I will get to last. We spent a lot of time with Yellow Diamond last time, and yet she is now offstage. We spent a little less time getting to know the Amethyst Twins, but the beginning of this episode fills them in a little further. Fos was awaiting their reassembly and revival in a penitent position, preparing to apologize for her role in what befell them as soon as it was possible. But Amethyst harbors no ill will, assigns no blame. In fact, they apologize to Fos before she can even explain more than how she was paralyzed with fear. They take the blame, explaining that they got careless, and are remorseful at the thought that this carelessness caused Fos to be terribly frightened. It certainly helps me clear up the questions I had last time about whether Fos should be blamed for the outcome, which was a potential reading of Bort's anger toward her. While Fos obviously didn't do exactly the right thing, Amethyst is revealed as someone who does not fixate on such shortcomings or lash out when they suffer misfortune. 
their patient way with Fos last episode does not dissipate even when they were put through such peril. Now, this apology from Amethyst doesn't set everything right in Fos's world. In fact, this episode featured a very troubled Fos indeed, so let's talk about her ebb and flow next. Now, Fos has three different phases of characterization this episode. First is that post-fight feeling of remorse and shame. Then there is the Fos who tries to put in the effort during the work with Antarctic Site. And finally, the Fos that gradually has her sense of inadequacy return, as her best seems like it still won't be enough. As mentioned, Fos begins the episode remorseful. Despite Amethyst's mollifying words, she is dissatisfied, and her speed becomes useful to leave the situation behind her, escaping into the night. The fact that she can move like this in darkness is a first hint that winter won't affect her like it has in the past, but the real value for Fos in that moment is that she can be alone with her turbulent thoughts. She will think to herself that she needs to be able to run away like this all the time, that she can't be paralyzed as she was in the Lunarian encounter. Well, she has a long way to go, as running into Cinnabar on patrol causes Fos to become, well, paralyzed. She hides herself and doing so reveals how she judges her progress toward being the one who saves Cinnabar. She is embarrassed, ashamed. What would she even say to her right now? Joining the fight hasn't gotten her closer, rather it has emphasized how far away she really is. It will begin snowing during the standoff. Combined with the darkness, the scene really highlights just how distant Fos and Cinnabar are from one another. Each is isolated and apart from each other and from the rest of their society. Falling snow also means the onset of winter, and so while this feared encounter gets a stay of execution, it really just means the matter stays unresolved. Fos's general discontent from how this episode begins will follow her into the preparations for hibernation, made worse by Congo leaving the matter we already discussed unresolved as well. Fos evidently is usually the first one down and the last one up, so to have her break from this multi-century pattern is remarkable all on its own. It is concrete evidence that she's not the same as a year ago. Yet is this only a change in her physicality, or is it also evidence of changes in her character? She will refuse to take the bedding to Cinnabar, still avoiding that confrontation. In that light, the idea that it is an internal restlessness that keeps her awake has a lot of merit, even if it is aided by the new legs in some way. It is certainly the reasoning she will give Antarcticite not long after Congo has them team up. The resulting interactions between Antarcticite and Fos comprise a large part of this episode and are the second phase of Fos's characterization. It's notable, of course, that Fos is thrilled at being asked to work as a pair, while Antarcticite is understandably hesitant. Their first private exchange bears this out, as Antarcticite has a lot of assumptions about Fos based on past behavior that Fos was fickle and aimless, and an Arcasite wonders if she isn't ashamed of her behavior, especially being half a level harder. Since she doesn't know about the physical differences, she even suggests that perhaps it is fear of facing another year of idleness that is keeping Fos awake. Not exactly right, but also not completely off the mark. And yet, Fos will not have to explain about having a new goal or even that she is motivated for the sake of someone else in order for the change to be apparent. She'll affirm that she joined the battle, poorly, and yet didn't get in any trouble, and so Antarcticite will first dismiss Fos's lack of punishment as a case of her being spoiled. But when Fos says this lack frustrates her so much that she couldn't sleep, 
I think it is not so much her words as her body language that starts to soften Antarcticite. Fos is usually defiant, or dismissive, or even delusional in her responses to criticism, and I'm sure this is what Antarcticite is used to. But the Fos in front of her now is unsure, maybe ashamed. She turns her face when explaining her inner turbulence, and rather than pulling herself back upright, she will let go of the offered sword and turn entirely away. She is not precisely begging here, but the bowed head and the sober tone she employs while expressing this desire to test herself is effectively supplication. Fos gives an air of penitence strong enough for Antarcticite to find genuine despite her starting assumptions. This new Fos actually wants to try. In fact, the whole shift is neatly summed up by the last part of their exchange. Antarcticite says that joining her in her tasks won't be easy, and Fos replies, I don't wanna, but I will. She isn't suited for this, but is eager to throw herself into it all the same. Fos is choosing action over wallowing in her sense of failure, already a turnaround from the Fos who hid from Cinnabar. Before we leave this scene, I can't help but wonder if the imagery of Antarcticite holding her sword out to where it overlaps Fos's arms is meant to foreshadow our cliffhanger. She doesn't actively take Fos's arms from her, right? She doesn't swing the sword, but she does put the whole notion in Fos's head. Now, whether that imagery is intended or not, I don't know, but the imagery of their journey through the snow almost certainly is. Antarcticite's path is straight and true, almost effortless, while Fos's path meanders. It's chaotic, and it's clearly a struggle for her. That by itself could sum up the lives of the other gems compared to Fos. She is testing herself against the faint light like she wanted, and she will have to slow to a stop, far behind. But as Antarcticite will point out when she halts, they are only halfway. The journey, the story, is not over for Fos. Antarcticite's advice will be to walk until you can't, and then walk some more. Fos seems unable to walk further, and in the past this was probably just the point where she gave up, if not before. But Fos pushes on, even without being able to walk, crawling with her face in the snow rather than turning back. Though she still has a long way to go, her will is stronger than her body. And it is perhaps most important to note that Fos does not simply walk behind Antarcticite. She does not take advantage of the path that someone else has cleared. She forges her own circuitous route forward. It's not pretty or glorious or even very efficient, and she arrives far later than the other walking with her, but she does arrive, on her own, in her own way. Part of me thinks this isn't just a reflection of the current Fos, because even as we go along this episode, we'll continue to see her stumble and doubt and starts to give up. Instead, I wonder if the latter half of this journey is the story of Fos to come, full of detours and roundabout ways of moving forward, and yet without ever turning all the way back or walking in someone else's footsteps. But again, the second phase for Fos is not just about trying, as she will be overwhelmed by the task that she has signed up for. When speaking with Antarcticite that evening, Fos will say that there are things she just can't do, and when it's implied this is because she never tries, Fos will answer that she does the things she can as best as she can. Fos did square herself up to a difficult task, but still trends towards assuming that there is a limit to what she can accomplish. Her path has not straightened out or become easy to tread just yet, but nor does she give up for all time. 
Antarcticite will answer Fos's statement that she does what she can as best she can by telling her that this is why she never accomplishes anything new. Rather than having Fos retort, we instead cut to the next day when she is preparing to try exactly what Antarcticite did before. Right down to jumping and placing the heel of her shoe just so at the top of the ice flow. That mimicry seems to suggest that she can do just as the others if she tries, at least when it comes to the use of her legs, because trying to duplicate the sword strike will leave Fos as cracked as the ice. Piling that failure onto the drudgery of their other tasks will begin to sap Fos's will once more until she finally thinks that maybe she can just leave this whole ice flow wrecking business up to Antarcticite. At that point, we start to transition into the third phase for Fos, as inadequacy starts to creep back in. As Congo will later explain, the ice flows do not speak of their own will, but reflect the anxieties of others and exacerbate them. When Fos first starts to hear them, they ask if she is alright and she hears them say, this hurts, and this is too much, and I want to go home. If Kongo is right, then these are really Fos's thoughts, and they come immediately after the succession of setbacks that she has in the midst of their chores. While Antarcticite means well, I think, her comments to Kongo when they discuss Fos's understanding the voices actually seems to make matters worse. She praises Fos for keeping up with her better than expected, yet can't help but wish that Fos had arms to match her legs. Implicit in this statement is something Fos had already said, that she only has her legs going for her. Even though she has pushed herself outside her comfort zone, her inherent limitations mean that trying harder isn't going to be enough. And so having this insecurity given validity by Antarcticite, Fos's anxieties start to focus on what else her shortcomings may suggest, that no matter what she tries, she is doomed to fail in her quest to save Cinnabar. She is able to snap out of the first instance of imagining the replacement of her arms, reasoning that there is no more of the shell anyway. Yet when the voices pick up her inner turmoil, the part that tempts her again is a fear that Cinnabar is nearing some crisis. Fos has changed up what is important to her. Simply being more capable at carrying out tasks is tempting, but it's not tempting enough. Doing something extreme for the cause of saving Cinnabar, though, is a lot more tempting. The ice flows seem to have a tap right into her subconscious, since replacing her arms is a new idea, and their siren song will overcome Fos's original objections. However, as I pointed out in Conflicts, Fos does snap herself out of it at the last moment. Despite the outcome, Fos is not intentionally doing something so reckless. I feel that is the upside of how things wrap up. But while I don't yet know what the outcome of the Lost Arms will be, I want us to keep in mind that we ended the episode with her character once again feeling like she can never measure up. Now, Cinnabar doesn't have her own section today, though she'll come up again in just a bit. However, I do just want to point out that despite how much time she spends offstage, her presence looms large at times in the way that Fos thinks and acts. This long period with no interaction between them gives Cinnabar still a tangible sense of affecting our story despite no action, precisely because Fos feels the need to avoid her. So a couple short sections before we get to our new character. Kongo I covered a bit in goals already, and the lack of rebuking or changing up Fos's situation certainly tells us something, I just don't quite yet know what it is. 
He remains inscrutable most of the time, but there are a few moments to take note of. When Antarcticite first greets him for the winter, he will suggest that it must be lonesome to work by herself each year. He apologizes for this state of things. He seemed similarly concerned about Cinnabar in the past when Fos asked after her, and I imagine this is part of what motivates him to have Fos participate in the winter tasks. Despite the distant formality that the Gems and Congo usually maintain, you get these moments which suggest a paternalistic concern. The yearly tradition between him and Antarcticite doesn't seem an odd thing for him to allow in that light, especially with no one else around. Additionally, while this is probably half worldbuilding, it's interesting to see that Congo seems to be somewhat affected by the reduced winter lighting. Perhaps he is a lot more like the gems than he looks, even if there may be fundamental differences. We'll discuss possible meanings of his name and theme today as well, which will actually reinforce this. I also just want to mention the gem Alexanderite for a couple things in her brief scene. The first is that she wants to be called Alexchan, and gets annoyed when the others call her Abaxan. We had already pointed out before that the gems don't use honorifics widely, only using Sensei for Kongo and Onisama for Yellow Diamond, uh, so they are significant for their rarity. Alexandrite trying to insist on being called by a diminutive thus seems like the kind of thing we should pay attention to. Additionally, she is in that opening scene because she wants to find out more about the new type of Lunarian. She is the same one who pestered Fos after she got her new legs. I think I said as much then, but having a gem whose shtick is researching Lunarians feels like the kind of thing that will come into play later. If I had to guess, she'll remember some detail or will intuit some connection that the rest might have otherwise missed. Lastly, Antarcticite. Again, this episode continues that pattern of giving new focus characters a day in the limelight. Outside of the ongoing support cast like Congo, Rutil, Jade, and Euclase, each new character we get to know also has a memorable way of coming on stage. Cinnabar was introduced in a description by Rutil before having a rather dramatic way of first interacting with Fos. Daya similarly has a brief cameo where the lights shift to multicolor before her first substantial interaction with Fos the next episode. That encounter features the fight with Lunarians which threatens to end in disaster, but that just sets up the dazzling introduction of Bort. Ventricosis comes on stage first as the giant snail that will nom on Fos, while the unveiling of her truer form is a different kind of spectacle. We first see Yellow Diamond zigging and zagging around Lunarian arrows to demonstrate her speed, and later that episode, the reveal of Amethyst as a set of twins has its own certain flair. It should therefore be no surprise that Antarcticite's first moments on screen are imbued with a bit of pageantry. Like with Cinnabar, we have a sequence of Rutile explaining the unique situation surrounding this gem's composition while being treated to a visual representation of the phenomena she describes. This gives the CGI another chance to show off what it is particularly good at. Once formed, Antarcticite will go to greet Kungo, but before we get her face revealed, we first get to hear her footfalls, which have a distinct echoing ring meant to invoke something frozen. We also see her unusual white uniform and her colorless, translucent hair. She is distinct in several ways from the other gems. Yet this distinctness actually reminds me of another gem all the same. 
As I said, Antarcticide is first described by Rutile before interacting with any other characters, which is exactly the same way Cinnabar was introduced into the story. The similarities don't stop there. It's actually the thing that struck me the most about our newest cast member. Both are low-hardness gems, both are associated with liquid states, both are able to work in conditions that the other gems cannot manage. I mentioned already that Congo seems to worry about Antarcticite's lonesomeness in a similar way as his worry about Cinnabar. This stems from perhaps the most important similarity between them. Both are isolated from their society due to something intrinsic to their nature. Neither has a partner due to this situation, hence Congo's concern. But both seem to address it in the same way, by further acting to keep others at arm's length almost as if to prove they don't need anyone. And yet both do things which undermine this tough front. Antarcticite has her yearly tradition with Congo in which they embrace, but she was mortified to have Fos witness this. It would seem Fos's assumption last time that everyone feels that way toward Congo is probably more on the money than they are largely able to admit. Likewise, Cinnabar acts as though she is beyond caring and is simply awaiting capture by the Lunarians, but really, she secretly hopes that Fos will come through with something. There's another tiny detail with Antarcticite that contrasts against the formality that she projects. You can occasionally see the inside lining of her black gloves. Rather than the uniformity of the rest of her and the other gem's clothing, the interior of these gloves is colorful and looks something like floral wallpaper or a cross-stitching pattern. Maybe this is just a result of Red Barrel having to repurpose some other material, but I find myself leaning toward it being a lot like her tradition with Kongo, a secret bit of sentimentality that she hides from the view of others. She has a soft spot behind the aloof exterior, and I think this comes out in her dealings with Fos. I mentioned already how Fos's body language seemed to prompt Antarcticite into reconsidering her assumptions. From that point on, Antarcticite is largely supportive. She instructs Fos on the finer points of their duties, and she only prods or criticizes when Fos herself begins to give up. It's not the easy acceptance of Fos that we got from Amethyst last time, or the sweetness that she gets from Daya, or even the introspective moments that she'll share with Rutile but it seems supportive all the same. Perhaps it's just the best that Antarcticite can manage. As Fos will point out, she isn't really good at working in a team, and considering her situation, that's almost certainly from a lack of experience. Now, the circumstance of our cliffhanger means that Antarcticite is almost certainly a big part of our next episode, at least the beginning. It may be that this reading of her as someone who has a soft inside but little experience showing it will have a lot to do with how this crisis plays out. I don't think she would leap to assuming that her words about Fos's arms had anything to do with what happened, but Fos may very well point it out. Antarcticite seemed uncomfortable with the little bit of guilt she felt when causing one of Fos's breaks this time, um, so as calm and collected as she seems when all is business as usual, I find myself wondering if she wouldn't do something desperate when maybe faced with the unexpected. One thing she says to Fos really sticks out to me. We low hardness gems have nothing if not our courage. I'll pick this idea back up again when we get to speculation. In world building, we will go over just a few short details that I found interesting, because a couple of them prompted the big new section in theme, and it's best to talk about it there. 
The first small detail is simply understanding that the gem's hair is, well, it's a lot like real hair. I realize that it flows in the wind or with motion, but considering how rigid their bodies and how unyielding their flesh, I guess I thought of each of their hairstyles as something as innate to them as their color schemes. Seeing that Amethyst's braids are not just some kind of texture on her head, but actual braids that Red Barrel restores, suggests that there are individual gem hair strands. For some reason, this was surprising to me, but at least it prepared me for the hibernation costume change, where just about everyone gets a completely different hairstyle than we have become used to. We learned that the blades of the Lunarian jaw-like trap from last time really are made from sapphire, like we guessed. Sapphire is harder than almost all of the gems, aside from our three diamonds. It makes me wonder if the Lunarians even tailor their more creative strategies to the gems that they target. Remember, our very first Lunarian encounter used the shards of Heliodor to attack Morganite and Gauchet, as they were all the same Moe's hardness, while the trap to catch Fos didn't need to involve any other gems to break her apart. One thing not made clear, I think, is how much of Sapphire they have thus recovered. Is there a partially reconstructed limb or two of hers kicking around now, like we have with Heliodor? We also learn that there are only about 10 sunny days during the winter, which means that the Lunarians are almost guaranteed to show up on those days. That predictability makes it so that Antarcticite and Kungo can handle any Lunarian incursions that occur while the others hibernate. So, it appears our speculation that Lunarians may also need to hibernate or something similar isn't quite right, but they are limited in activity during winter, just limited in a different way than most of our gems. Something related to this that I don't think was spelled out is that the shorter days don't seem to affect the gems based on hardness. Most years, Fos goes down first and is up last, but this year she can push through with some difficulty. However, all the others wind down and hibernate at the same time. I understand that Antarcticite's body only has solid form when it's cold, but how does this relate to the gems normally needing sunlight to even have the energy to move? Is she just so transparent that the winter sun is sufficient? Kongo, I already mentioned, seems somewhat affected by the light based on the sleepwalking, but not enough to need to hibernate. So the matter of Kungo and Antarcticite being exceptions is presented, but it's not quite expounded. However, I find myself wondering about Cinnabar when it comes to this subject. She understandably doesn't join the rest for the hibernation, they are thoughtful enough to bring her some clothing like the rest, but we see that Cinnabar has left the garments untouched. I wonder then, does she even need to hibernate? The whole reason she can do the night patrols is that she can gather enough of the faint light to herself with her silvery poison to make do. Winter sunlight may be diminished, but it's still a lot more sun than you get during, you know, the nighttime. I feel like I should expect Cinnabar to be completely awake during this whole ordeal. Their winter duties will comprise another collection of interesting details, but the one which stands out the most is the situation with the ice flows. Fost, at first sight, finds that they remind her of Lunarians, and the groaning, crashing, screaming way they slide past one another is more similar to the introduction of a monster than a weather phenomenon. That impression seems apropos after we discover that they can speak into Fos's mind and read her anxieties, which will tempt her into the situation that costs her arms. Finding out that Kongo has referred to them as sinners in the past will heighten the mystery of their existence still further and is a detail that I'll explore later on. 
The only explanation that we get is from Kongo, who says that they are but dregs of creatures from the beginning of time. I'd be awfully curious to find out how he knows that, right? Lastly, there is the entire hibernation sequence and the preparations for it. The hibernation itself I find pretty straightforward. There's less light in the winter, so the gems are exhausted most of the time. It apparently stays pretty overcast, so there isn't much Lunarian incursion, and Congo and Antarcticite can handle whatever crops up. There's nothing to be gained fighting to stay awake, so you might as well curtain off one room and stay asleep throughout. Nothing about that is mysterious. However, the ritual-like nature of this hibernation had me raising my eyebrows a bit, and was the final detail that convinced me that I had a new thematic lens that I just couldn't ignore any longer. That'll be the last part of this upcoming theme section, so let's just move on to theme. I have two new thematic ways of looking at our series to share with you today, one at the start of the section and another at the end. The first one has to do with the structure, and arguably could be encompassed entirely within the second new entry's way of looking at our story, uh, but it doesn't have to be, so I thought I would just split them apart. That first one I'm calling Journey Without Distance, because I seem to love melodramatic theme names. This theme occurs to me because of the pattern of bringing the new characters into focus, and then having them drop back out of the story with little overlap. I would say that, so far, Fosa's part of the narrative mimics a journey structure, which I missed because of them just staying on the same island. To explain, imagine a story like The Odyssey, or Gulliver's Travels, or Alice in Wonderland, where the main character has a series of encounters as they travel along that each has their own kind of miniature arc and resolution. Every stop on their way may be only tangentially related to the others, yet will shape the main character's outlook on the world and their sense of priorities. Often, the little mini-stories will have an independent identity and their own internal logic, and may actually represent some other concept or institution in the world of the author. It's a good formula for satire, or for allegory. While Faust does not travel from place to place as we've gone along, the different sort of encounters with the other characters bear a lot of resemblance to the serial destinations in stories that are structured that way. With just a slight change, the story so far could have been Fos in the Country of the Diamonds, and then Fos visits the Isles of the Admirabilis, and now we're in the middle of Fos in the Lands of Winter, and so on. Each part is only really connected to the others through the person of Fos, and it only advances in a way we understand when she is present. Thus, a sort of journey, but without any distance traveled. I have noted before that a lot of the gems seem to have a dominant personality trait, or perhaps could even be representative of a certain kind of thought or certain characterization. That could bring the structure of the series closer to the allegorial usage of the journey motif story, um, though I don't want to suggest that Land of the Lustrous is merely allegory, and thus has a single interpretation. Now, I could be wrong, and we'll see the second half open up with a large single arc, or perhaps a journey will happen in truth. Certainly, the ever-present threat of being taken to the moon doesn't have to remain an abstract danger forever, though there wouldn't be any harm in that either. It would then just be a matter of understanding what that threat represents, if it ends up serving very little narrative purpose. Now, while this next one is technically new, it's more visual symbolism than a fully-fledged theme, so it may not even show up again, and that is Snow Means Death. 
This one is common to most cultural traditions that experience cold winters, as the association between snowfall and the death of the year is a pretty easy leap. Doubly so during points in history where the scarcity of winter often threatened death in truth. In a literary context, however, snow doesn't have to portend actual death. It can instead signal the end of something. A relationship, an institution, a hope. Snowfall is often a signal that the status quo is about to be upended. In this episode, snowflakes begin to fall just as Fos is hiding from Cinnabar, ashamed at her shortcomings and the lack of any tangible progress towards keeping her promise. The rest of the episode then sees Fos breaking away from her usual pattern during the winter months and trying to overturn the status quo of her capabilities. Depending on how her lost arms are resolved, the Fos that exists right now might be dead in a manner of speaking unable to go back to who she was. That plays nicely with the next theme, metamorphosis, but before moving on, I also want to point out that there is another status quo situation. The other person in the snow scene has been going about to this self-imposed, isolated life for some time. Fos fears that it will reach some breaking point before she can deliver on her promise, though for now, Cinnabar is still safe in the usual pattern. But. The final thing that tempts Fos too close to the edge is the idea that waiting for spring is waiting too long, that there is an impending but unwanted end to Cinnabar's situation. Fos does long for a symbolic death of Cinnabar's circumstance, but the wrong kind may be closer to a death in truth. So in Metamorphosis, the new crisis of Fos's missing arms could resolve in a few ways I can think of, um, and I'll deal with that in speculation. If it is something besides simply fishing out the missing appendages and reattaching them, then we may have a further physical change to go with this metamorphosis theme, but we don't know that yet. We'll have that conversation when and if it happens. What we do have is a change in Fos's usual behavior as winter descends on our island. Despite her given reason for why she isn't hibernating like the rest, it appears to me that it's actually a culmination of the ways that she has changed in the year previous. Physically, she is different for sure. The inclusions in her new legs can use much more of their own power than they could previously. Whether this is a one-off from 300 years of her inclusions holding back, or if it's simply the state of things from now on, is something that we don't get any additional clarity toward. But the new legs are not the only thing that has changed for her, and I feel like they aren't really even the most important thing. She lost the memories associated with the legs, yes, but perhaps a more important metamorphosis was the one that saw the aimless and jobless Fos change into someone with purpose and direction. As we mentioned before, she is unable to face Cinnabar when she runs across her earlier in the episode, and will avoid her again when it comes to delivering the winter clothing. She is ashamed of the progress she has made on her self-imposed purpose, the first purpose that she's really ever had. It can't be easy to slip into restful bliss with so much unfinished business. The old Fos, who was the first one down each year, wasn't capable of solving Cinnabar's problem. The Fos who has changed and grown and dedicated herself to the matter still isn't capable of solving Cinnabar's problem. Some further, even newer Fos is required and she cannot become that Fos if she is hibernating with the rest. Thus, we'll have this episode where Fos challenges herself to evolve further, 
And yet that process and this theme are clearly far from over. We last talked about innate value versus purpose in episode 4. This is that tension between the idea that one's value is tied to one's purpose versus the idea that one's value is innate. Are you intrinsically valuable to a society merely by existing in it, or is it linked to your contribution? How does a society's take on that question affect one's own sense of value? To what degree does having or lacking a purpose affects your character or actions? It's a particularly interesting tension for the series because the gems are assigned jobs, their assigned purpose, based largely on the unchanging physical makeup. The diamonds are put on the front line of battle for the same reason that Fos is kept away from it. In this episode, we learn that Antarcticite's nature means that she's the only one around in the winter months, and she is incapable of keeping form for the rest of the year. Her purpose becomes fulfilling the winter duties seemingly by default. And to be sure, she seems to have no complaint, she takes this charge very seriously, and she isn't possessive about the job once she accepts that Fos really intends to help. Antarctic Sight has her role in society, and she seemingly wants for nothing in this respect. But if she was actually dissatisfied or rejected this purpose, what difference would it make? She can hardly do the jobs of the other gems if she is in a liquid state most of the time. She may be lonesome, as Kungo proposes, but again, what other situation could she hope for when no one else can stay awake? A simple acceptance of her lot in life seems like the path of wisdom, for what good will dissatisfaction do her? Against her example, Fos is quite the contrast. Fos has little acceptance in society due to her lack of contribution, so she's an easy example of how the gems will judge one's value. Certainly, Antarcticite's assumptions about her earlier in the episode will demonstrate the derision that most hold. But as she has been given roles, first the encyclopedia and then joining the fight, she has found reasons to be dissatisfied all the same. Instead, she adopted a purpose of her own accord that had nothing to do with her own capabilities. In fact, the way she is coming up short is filling her with anxiety. Contrast that against our very first introduction to Fos, who was someone lounging in the grass with seemingly no cares in the world. Perhaps a victory of some kind will change things for Fos, uh, but so far, taking on a sense of purpose has actually probably done damage to her self-value. If for no other reason, then she has to face exactly how little she measures up. I talked last time about how she is a different, better person when motivated to act for Cinnabar's sake, but that is from our point of view in the audience. Her own sense of self is probably taking quite the hit from all of these failings. Of course, Fos is also unique in all this by being the one gem who has changed her physical makeup and her capabilities along with it. If we assume that a further change is coming, it's going to be interesting to see if that impacts how she is valued, either by herself or by her society. And it won't necessarily be the same thing in each. So for the other new theme, I'm finally getting over my reluctance to embrace an external reference. My usual MO is to prefer constraining analysis to the information contained within a story, privileging text over context, unless I feel that something external to the text is being invoked overtly. In that light, I feel I should first explain why this episode put me over the edge. The first and more minor detail was Antarcticite's description of the ice flows when Fos is introduced to them. 
she'll share that Kongu once referred to them as sinners and that she has never been able to forget that. The significance here is not so much that Kongu referred offhandedly to them as sinners, though that is still important. Rather, it is Antarcticite's comment that she has never been able to forget that he said that. She finds it noteworthy, something that sticks out to her, and so it should stick out to us as well. I've mentioned here and there in these videos that several elements of our series will strike me as resembling religious iconography or aesthetics. Um, I don't have any sort of guideline about how many such allusions should constitute a deliberate reference or anything like that, but certainly the more there are, the more likely the pattern is intentional, the more likely we are meant to notice. Thus, it is really the second detail that puts me over the edge when taken along with all of the other clues. And this detail is our hibernation sequence, specifically how they prepare themselves. Take a look at the way the gems change their appearance for what on the surface is just a really long nap. Seems awfully ostentatious compared to what we've come to expect from the gem society, right? Maybe even downright wasteful? Remember Phos not wanting to abandon the wooden bowl in the ocean because they aren't supposed to waste things? And then in this episode, we saw that the desk that Kongo destroyed last time was not replaced, but was repaired with extensive use of bowtie splines. Red Barrel will even point out that she pulled this all together despite their lack of fabric. And so we know it's not just that they have the surplus of the stuff lying around. That comment comes as a response to Daya expressing hesitation about this yearly ritual. All they do is sleep. The stuff just gets wrinkled. And she's right. This seems out of the ordinary for gym society. It's not just having sleep-specific garments, but such elaborate ones. And they are unique to each gym, rather than the homogenous uniform we always see them in. And they come with a change in hairstyle for everyone. Take all this together, and I think we can conclude there is heightened significance around the hibernation event. Even gathering the gems together to bid Kongo goodnight before they lay down has something of a ritualistic feel to it, and the white draped room looks something more like a theater set than a space decorated for pragmatism. When we have a diversion from established patterns in a story, we are usually dealing with one of two things, a mistake in continuity, or a giant circle drawn around the diversion that screams, pay attention to this. Obviously, I am assuming that it is the latter. So looking at just at the dramatic change in their garments, what do we have? Dressed all in white, especially elaborate clothing, new hairstyles for what seems like a special day. Stripped of context, I could be talking about the preparation for a wedding. There's certainly a lot of overlap between the way the gems are dressed and the elaborate white kimonos which Japanese women will sometimes wear for their marriage ceremony. The especially long sleeve length, a furisode kimono, is something associated with formal dress for young women. Women after marriage traditionally shorten their sleeves, so the impression of this scene at first glance is a group of soon-to-be brides. Except for one important thing. While a white kimono for women is the traditional garment for a Shinto-style wedding, it's also the traditional garment for a Buddhist funeral, which is the type of ritual that 90% of modern Japanese will employ. It is the cultural norm. Now, the gem's outfits are far more elaborate than the usual burial kimono, and it's also traditional to wear the hair down rather than up, as they do here. 
this still seems far more like wedding attire, again, except for one thing. If you ever buy a kimono from someone who knows what they are about, they will implore you to wrap it in a certain order. Always wear it with the left side on top of the right side, left over right. It is considered extremely unlucky to wear it the other way around, because the only time a kimono is worn right over left is when it is on a corpse. It's one of these details of the Buddhist-inspired Japanese funeral ritual. So look again at that shot of the gems lined up. Studying their collars especially, you can see that they are, without exception, wrapped from right to left, like a body prepared for its send-off. This isn't the sort of thing our animation studio is likely to make a mistake about. Indeed, Kongo and his robes are always properly wrapped left over right, as befits the living. Of course, what they are preparing to do here is to sleep, to hibernate through the season of low light. For immortal beings, this is perhaps the closest they come to a death-like state. When they wake in the spring, they will change back out of these clothes, essentially completing a death and rebirth cycle in parallel with the year. If you look back at the beginning of this episode, too, the Amethyst twins are likewise prepared in white robes wrapped right over left while they are being reassembled. That scene is also rather solemn and ritualistic, recalling the atmosphere of a funeral wake as they are laid out on a table and others keep watch through the night. When Bort sleepwalks in the room with the other sleepers, the solution to get her down again is to throw a sheet over her, like covering a body with a shroud. As Antarctosite says, doing so will send them right to sleep, and yet she doesn't really understand why. Therefore, at this point, I feel confident that an external reference is being invoked. The gems don't have a direct cultural link to humanity. This ritualistic mock burial is for our benefit, to guide our impression of what we are seeing. And so, with what I confess is a lot of hesitation, I'm going to start looking at Land of the Lustrous through the lens of Buddhism. Once you accept that you have Buddhist aspects to the series, you can find them pretty quickly. Kongo, from the very beginning, looks like a Buddhist monk. Rather specifically, a Buddhist monk in black robes with a yellow kesa around one's shoulder suggests a monk of the Zen Buddhist tradition. However, I wasn't ready to leap to that conclusion purely off of how he looks in the first episode. An aesthetic choice can be just that. It can suggest Kungo as monk-like without specifically meaning Buddhism. To give an example, if you have an anime series that has a lot of characters dressed up as Catholic nuns, you probably shouldn't assume that the series will explore, say, the Seven Sacraments. There is such a thing as using a religion's aesthetics without actually exploring its dogma. At this point, though, I feel we are meant to notice Buddhism's influence throughout. Going forward, then, I will probably have a Buddhist section in our theme category each time, and I will try to confine the things that I notice to it. Truthfully, we could let Buddhist interpretations invade all of our other sections pretty easily, as a lot of what we've noticed integrates pretty well with that worldview. I have a notion that someone deeply steeped in Buddhist culture could interpret this entire story as an exploration of that tradition. I, however, want to provide analysis that isn't dependent on this one lens, so we will try to contain it. Part of that reason, too, is there are potential pitfalls for me as a Western audience member and a quasi-analyst. I have a lack of cultural familiarity with Buddhism and its influence on a society the Japanese audience member can be assumed to possess. 
They will pick up cues that I will miss because Buddhism is well understood and widely practiced in their history, while it is neither of those things in mine. But this will happen in reverse as well. Allusions to, say, the Genesis story of Adam and Eve and the forbidden fruit will leap out at me in a way that they may not for a Japanese viewer. We have different sensitivities to cultural references. That means if an anime wants to allude to something like the Genesis story, they need to make that allusion more overt than they would need to if they were playing to a Western audience. But references they can take for granted or well understood by their target audience can be much more subtle. So subtle, in fact, that those with a different cultural familiarity, like me, can easily miss them or misconstrue their significance. And it's not just me either. My audience will largely be ignorant of Buddhism and its various flavors and core tenets, the historical context for Buddha and how much or little that may matter to practitioners, and so on. The greater part of my audience is English-speaking and Western-cultured, quite different from the original target audience. But we can hardly go on a 30-minute tangent for a very basic overview in the midst of what are already very long videos. Uh, nor is my own uh, understanding exhaustive enough to have much confidence in the connections that I do pick up. I hope you will therefore be understanding of any misconceptions I may have, and that any Buddhists in the audience will forgive my generalizations. Luckily, Buddhists in my experience are rather chill about this sort of thing. So let's not pretend this will be exhaustive, it will be much more like a survey. I just want to suggest some possible patterns or ways that the two things may interact, and it's just something we'll continually visit from now on. Alright then, for a really bird's eye view, the Buddha taught that life is fundamentally unsatisfying and full of pain and suffering because we have attachments and cravings for things which are impermanent, because all things are impermanent. This keeps us trapped in an endless cycle of death and rebirth and re-death called samsara. Escaping the cycle requires the ceasing of craving, which is called nirvana. Buddhist practice is then largely concerned with awakening to the true nature of the world and oneself, which will lead to the extinguishing of desires and attachments. From there, you'll find a lot of variation depending on which Buddhist uh, tradition that you consult, uh, in the same way that Abrahamic religions share some core tenets but can otherwise diverge rather widely. Rather than try to choose which one is the correct one to serve as our lens, I will simply suggest things which may overlap. At the very least, it may give you a starting point if you want to dig further. First up then, the emphasis on impermanence. Nothing lasts forever, not even your soul, though some quality of yourself will drift from life to life so long as you are caught in samsara. The mythic past of our series, detailed back in episode 2, tells the story of a world destroyed and reborn again, along with its inhabitants. Humanity itself died out, only to return in new forms as the Gems, Lunarians, and Admirabilis, at least according to what we heard from Ventricosis. The Gems are effectively immortal, but that is not the same thing as permanent or unchanging. Losing pieces of themselves over time changes what they remember, and they can be broken apart and refashioned. Phos especially seems to be demonstrating that what seemed like a rigidly ordered system is only an illusion. Phos is basically the antithesis of a Buddhist, really. She wants things she doesn't have, she doesn't want things she does have, and, at least in the beginning, she was content in her ignorance. 
I'm not sure how many times I've said dissatisfied when referring to Fos, but dissatisfaction is that state from which Buddhists are trying to free themselves. Her turmoil could be Exhibit A when it comes to explaining why Buddhism pursues freedom from craving. But Fos is not some aberration in their society either. The gems present as content and dutiful in their existence on a surface level, but as we've gone along, we get little insights which suggest some cracks in that facade. Cinnabar is obviously unhappy with her perceived lack of purpose. Daya has an identity crisis due to constantly being upstaged by Bort. Yellow Diamond has regrets about the past partners that she feels she let down. Even Congo has turmoil over Cinnabar's situation. While the gems are not greedy and warmongering like the Lunarians, nor given to the pursuit of sensual pleasures as the Admirabilis seem to be, they are still not exactly awakened beings. So speaking of the three races, I try to think of what possible significance there could be for three different races in the context of Buddhist Dharma or cosmology. Um, there are a lot of threes in Buddhism. Three poisons, three marks of existence, even the three jewels, though that one almost certainly doesn't map to our sapient races. The three poisons is a possibility, though. This is also called the threefold fires, or the three unwholesome roots. These are the innate character flaws or afflictions which lead to craving and therefore to all unpleasant mental states. One of these poisons can be translated as sensuality or greed or desire. Another is akin to hatred or avarice or hostility. And the last is ignorance or delusion or confusion. The Admirabilis could potentially be a fit for the first as they are the flesh of our trifecta and seem to enjoy the pleasures thereof, hence growing fat on sweet stuff on the moon and all of Intrinacosis's flirtatious moments. The Lunarians definitely qualify as hostile to look at a different poison, and that would then leave our gems as the ones who are ignorant or confused, which may be true from a certain point of view. There is a lot that they don't know, and Fos's original task of creating an encyclopedia for the first time suggests a culture that does not already seek knowledge or wisdom. Taken this way, you can almost imagine that our three races are the three primary shortcomings that were inherent in humanity, and when life began to reset itself after the Six Moons story, they arose as separate beings instead of all being contained in the same being. Ventricosis and Fos's little conversation about the soul-flesh-bone legend already hints at this idea of splitting up mankind's qualities among them. And really, if you look at the gems, you see a lot of things that we would call human desires are totally absent. They don't need to eat or drink, and so there is no delight or want for either, but neither do they feel hunger or thirst. They have no gender, so there is no sexual desire, nor is there any reproduction or the resulting family structure, so there's no attachments across those lines either. There doesn't even seem to be a concept of ownership, thus no opportunity for materialistic greed to arise. Breaking apart doesn't seem to cause them pain, so I have to imagine they also have no sensory pleasure either. Maybe they don't even have a sense of taste or smell. Another possibility is to map them to elements of the Buddhist cosmology. It's way too vast to adequately explain here, um, and there are variations depending on each tradition. So I have just picked other things which occur in threes, which may or may not be related to each other. One of those is that the circle of Earth in this cosmology consists of three realms. The form realm, 
the Formless Realm, and the Desire Realm. There are a lot of subdivisions, and we'll talk more about the Desire Realm in a moment, um, but it should be pointed out first that these realms or worlds are more like mental perspectives or states of mind, um, and are not necessarily physically separate realms. Animals and humans inhabit the same space, but are considered to live in different realms uh, as they experience existence differently. The Desire Realm contains the earthly domains where humans live, but before that, I just want to share an interesting bit about the Form Realms. Um, I am using Wikipedia's wording here. The beings of the Form Realm are not subject to the extremes of pleasure and pain, or governed by desires for things pleasing to the senses. The bodies of Form Realm beings do not have sexual distinctions. Take that as you will, since we are not actually dealing with true humans in this series, and could therefore be involving more than just the normal planes of the Desire Realm. Plus, it's probably all metaphorical anyway. Now, the Desire Realm contains all the planes of Samsara, the cycle of death and rebirth. When a being dies, the karma they generated in their life determines which of these planes they are reborn into. There are usually six of these, depending on tradition, one of which is the human realm, and another the animal realm that we have already spoken of. There's also a type of purgatory realm at the very bottom. Now between those two realms is something referred to as the Purita realm, or the hungry ghost domain. As the name implies, the beings of this realm suffer extreme hunger and thirst, but they can never be satisfied. Now bring it up because the bit this time about the ice flows as sinners kind of reminded me of this concept. Now the remaining two realms are comprised of devas in the domain of bliss, and the Asarat in the Jealous God domain. The blissful domain has a disadvantage for its inhabitants in that things are so comfortable that they aren't motivated to work very hard towards enlightenment. They are also very powerful compared to humans. The inhabitants of the Jealous God domain, as that name implies, are very envious of the devas in their blissful realm, even though their own realm is more pleasant than the human world in certain traditions. There has been fighting between the inhabitants of these two realms, owing to this envy, and the generally wrathful nature of the Asarat. Maybe you can guess already, but I'm mentioning these two because their relationship reminds me so much of the Gems and Lunarians. Now, our three races may not be meant to represent or allude to anything of the sort, or anything at all, perhaps, um, but before leaving Buddhist cosmology, I wanted to mention that it also has a cycle of destruction and restoration for the universe. The structures of the universe are rebuilt first, and then beings start to be born in each of the realms, kind of slowly filling them back up again. Something about that also made me think back to the prehistory that we were presented with in episode 2. Moving on, we have Kongo himself. As I said earlier, he already looks the part of a Buddhist monk with his robes and his hairless head. By the way, monks shave their heads because of letting go of attachments. No time is wasted on fixing one's hair, no worry is expended over how it looks or what is in style. A shaven pate eliminates that whole area of concern. It's thus interesting that the standout physical feature of our gems is their hair. They are otherwise nearly identical, no variation in body type, and almost no variation in wardrobe. Even the benefit of making the series 3D CGI rather than hand-drawn has its most obvious example in the gem's hair and how it changes the light around them. 
Sorry, I know that is a minor tangent, but I kind of found it curious. The point is, Kongo looks the part, and it seems like he acts the part as well. He does seated meditation, which is an essential part of Zen Buddhism, and is especially good at it, as Jade will discover to her sorrow. The constant control he tries to exercise over his emotions is rather consistent with a monk who is trying to blow out his inner fires. Most telling, perhaps, though, is his name. While the others are called by the name of their respective gemstones, which means their names are rendered in katakana as befits minerals, Kongo's name is rendered in kanji, which we can see clearly in the credits, Kongo Sensei. It's a proper Japanese word. Now I am borrowing romajides.com's definitions here, but his name means vajra, in an indestructible substance, or diamond, or adamantine, effectively some kind of super diamond, something that is unbreakable. It can also therefore be a Buddhist symbol of the indestructible truth. That first term that you see there, vajra, is a Sanskrit word that means both diamond and thunderbolt, something which is indestructible but also irresistible. It therefore is used to name a weapon wielded by the deity Indra, and will show up in Buddhist traditions to represent spiritual power or spiritual firmness. One of the major schools of Buddhism, Vajrayana, uses this weapon as their symbol, implying the thunderbolt-like experience of enlightenment, a sudden clearing away of the illusions of the world. The Vajra is also a male symbol in some traditions, being somewhat phallic in shape, and so Kongo looking very male compared to our gems may have this as its origin. The accompanying item that would be the female symbol in this context is one of the few things that shows up in nearly every Buddhist tradition, and that item is a bell. Now, what perhaps is Kongo's role in all this taken from the Buddhist angle? The honorific of sensei implies a teacher, or one who holds authority, or one who has attained mastery in some art or skill. On a surface level, he does act as the de facto leader, of course, but to answer the question from the Buddhist lens, I want to suggest he may be a bodhisattva, or at least representative of one. A bodhisattva is someone on the path to Buddhahood, and in a lot of traditions, they are not concerned solely with their own enlightenment, but work to help others along their own paths. Some even stay in samsara longer than necessary in order to guide others, putting off their own release from the cycle. Some vow to work towards the complete enlightenment of all sentient beings. As I have heard it put, the ultimate goal of Buddhism is the elimination of Buddhism, a point in time when it is no longer necessary. From that perspective, Kongo attempting to find good works for each of the gems has a subtext beyond creating a stable society. It also would explain for me why he reacts with pity to the Lunarians rather than anger. They are giving in to attachment and wrathful actions, and so are dooming themselves to staying trapped in the cycle. One last thing to add in for this section. Assuming that Zen Buddhism is the most likely variation being invoked, I want to point out a tradition particular to its Japanese influences, the drawing of an inso. This is that open or closed circle that's drawn in calligraphy in one or two strokes. Uh, here is an example of an open inso. I can't help but feel that it bears a striking resemblance to the shape of our little island. Now, there is where I will stop with possible Buddhist tie-ins for this video. There's a lot more in all the things I've read and listened to that could be applied. There's also a real risk of overloading the video with unfamiliar terms, 
or oversimplifying to the point of uselessness, and it's possible that I've already done both. But there is a lot in the general Buddhist worldview that I think can help demystify some of the worldviews we get from our characters. Like I said, there's so much potential overlap that I am deliberately trying to keep it from overrunning the other sections. For example, most of our themes that I've mentioned so far, without considering Buddhist angles, nevertheless integrate pretty nicely. Change versus permanence is right at the heart of the Buddhist thoughts on the nature of the world. Metamorphosis applies both to one's own path within a karmic cycle while striving toward awakening, and it also applies to the death and rebirth cycle of samsara. The journey without distance bit I mentioned at the start kind of plays into that same idea. So does our individual versus society themes, as Buddhism itself was a break from the prevailing Vedic traditions of its day with their focus on group allegiance. Buddhism instead stressed the individual finding their own path toward enlightenment rather than strictly following the path laid out by others. I don't know what else our story holds, of course, but I expect to continue building this section of our videos over time. Hopefully that makes the whole thing less overwhelming, even as kind of oversimplified as I am trying to make it. In What to Watch For, let's first revisit what we were anticipating in the last video. One of the main things was the reaction to the disastrous scouting mission that saw Amethyst split asunder while Fos watched. There were two main things I wanted to see. The external reaction to Fos's failure, and how Fos internalized the whole ordeal. Bort's accusatory posture at the end made me wonder if there wouldn't be a strong community reaction against Fos, and we pointed out that we often saw Rutile noticing just how out of her element Fos appeared. But there is no rebuke of Fos at all, and even her apology to Amethyst becomes an apology given to her instead. We already went over the fact that Kongo staying silent is noteworthy, and it may be that this explains why the rest of the gems seem to just move on from the affair. If it's business as usual for Congo, then maybe it is for them as well. Or maybe Amethyst taking responsibility has a pacifying effect on the rest. Either way, there is no hint that the gems have changed their treatment or opinion of Fos after this encounter. Internally, though, Fos wrestled with this failure quite a bit, and the events of this whole episode are largely a result of that turmoil. We covered it already, but Fos does not choose to give up her new job despite the shine being off. Maybe she has changed how she feels about it, but at the moment, trying to change herself seems to be all that matters. We also said we'd watch Kongo's reaction, and of course the non-reaction itself became notable. Still going to have to keep an eye out for any hint to what his thought process is, though, throughout all of this. As far as new things to watch for, obviously how to deal with Fos losing her arms is the main thing leading us into the next episode. But what I particularly want to watch is how Antarcticite handles this crisis. I suggested in characterization that some combination of guilt and an inner soft spot could lead to her putting herself out for Fos's sake, instead of just rebuking her for her clumsiness and carrying on. Related to this, I actually kind of wonder if Antarcticite might be especially vulnerable to the water. Like, if she got too warm outside of the containment bathtub, or even fell in the ocean, can we even recover her? Uh, the actual compound of Antarcticite is hygroscopic, um, it attracts water to itself, uh, so I am left wondering kind of how did she come up to land in the first place? Was she just like the ice flow centers, except successfully coalesced into a fully formed gem? 
I find myself wanting to watch to see if there is anything special about how she was born to go along with all of the other ways that she is unique. The other thing that I'm curious to watch for is whether the insinuation of the ice flows made about Cinnabar will end up having any merit. Some looming disaster is implied, but is this an actual disaster or just Fos's fears being fed back to her? That is what Kongo tells her, but Kongo has his reasons to keep some information from the gems, it seems, so I would be a little wary of taking anything he says at face value. I don't have a reason to gainsay him for this particular example, but I feel like we have been given a sense of urgency about Cinnabar's situation that contrasts with how all of the gems think of her, aside from Fos. Maybe it's just because Fos is our point of view character, or maybe we really are supposed to feel a sense of foreboding towards Cinnabar and the ever-present threat of the Lunarians. Let us not forget that the very first images of this entire series are Cinnabar and the Moon, so I at least think we are supposed to share Infos's constant apprehension toward her, um, that there really is something to that fear, and that will be the case whether or not Spring is an actual point of no return. So there is really just the one thing to speculate about. How is the missing arms crisis going to be addressed? Throughout this video, we've already laid out some of the things that make the situation such a mess. The danger of the ice flows means that going after the missing arms is either hazardous or impossible. Antarcticite's physical makeup may suggest that she can't even entertain the idea, and with her earlier statements about the ice grinding you to dust, it might be a moot point anyway. Winter means there is no one else around to advise or aid her, with the possible exception of Kongo. Maybe Cinnabar, if I'm right about her being able to stay awake if she chose. Uh, but it seems equally likely that she and Fos will have to sort this out themselves. This same isolation probably means that Antarcticite cannot stop everything to help Fos out. Quite apart from her duties, there is still the threat of a sunny day bringing the Lunarians down upon them. If we assume that rescuing the arms is out, then what is left? Sequestering Fos in the room with everyone else and sorting this whole thing out in spring? That seems pragmatic, and somewhat anticlimactic. Even without the justification of the dangerous ice flows, it seems like better storytelling to have Fos's arms be irretrievable. After all, them merely breaking off is hardly a new development, so something more dramatic is likely. This same rationale can probably be applied toward what to do with Fos. Having her sit out for the rest of winter isn't very compelling, so I would lean towards assuming that we'll have a development which prevents this responsible but rather boring solution. In that case, we come back to the missing arms. Some kind of replacement is needed, but this episode makes an express point that it can't be Agate again because there is none left. What else could substitute? Agate worked not only because of its hardness, but because there were no existing inclusions. Is there any material just sitting around that likewise has no inclusions? Several things occur to me here, and I don't know that I favor one over the other. The first is the centers, the dregs of creatures from the beginning of time, or whatever. The gems can sort of understand them, and Fos can completely understand them, because they are a lot alike. Does that mean that there is some mineral-like substance in those ice flows that could be repurposed? Like, I can't help but notice that one of them shows up in the background when Antarcticite is lifting Fos out of the water. Or does the fact that they speak suggest they already have inclusions and so cannot be used? 
Or even if they can be, will they just melt with the coming of spring, like I assume Antarcticite does each year? I find myself wondering if this melty quality isn't its own hint. We have the ice flows, the centers, who I imagine crystallize in winter. Antarcticite does this as well, and is usually in a liquid state. And then we have Cinnabar, who for all we know is poking around here somewhere, who also has a liquid state associated with her, though the mercury is external to her rather than being something that she changes into. Is it happenstance to have all of these examples at once? I also find myself wondering about Cinnabar's mercury when it comes to inclusions. I assume her body is solid, if soft, and full of the inclusions which power her, but is the mercury an extension of herself? Does using it cause her to lose memories like being chipped does for the others? Or is it completely inert in the same way as the agate shell? I'm wondering this because another possibility is obsidian. We learned that obsidian the gem is their weapon crafter, and since the actual obsidian mineral is black and was often used as a weapon, it's a rather natural leap to assume that this is what their swords are made of. But presumably, she's not hacking pieces of herself off for the others to swing about, right? There is some supply of obsidian which has no inclusions sitting around here somewhere, and maybe in a pinch that will serve. I have to say, the mental image of a Fos with swords for arms is pretty amusing, but I actually doubt that's how it's going to actually turn out. Another possibility is more thematic in origin. Just last video, I was wondering if Fos did not already constitute a joining of bone and flesh, passing through ventricosis and gaining her speech, and then restoring her legs with the agate shell. If there is something to the idea of joining the three races together to bring humanity back, then joining Fos to the soul in some way suggests itself as a direction. I was really only spitballing this notion last time, and now here we are with Fos needing replacement arms. The Lunarians haven't shown up yet this winter, so I think an appearance is rather likely. I don't begin to understand how Lunarian anything could help fill in for Fos's arms, as they also seem to have the issue of fading away. But certainly the stage is set if they had wanted to go in this direction. Having the Lunarians show up now of all times could be the disruption I assume is in the works to prevent the boring and pragmatic answer to our cliffhanger. I cannot imagine what kind of wildness we are in for if this is even partially true. Now, Fos needs new arms, okay, but that's not the only consequence. She has lost even more memories. What has she forgotten this time? Is her personality tied to her memory enough that she could even change the kind of character she is? The story is going to get really complicated if she has forgotten Cinnabar or the promise that drives her. I suggested earlier that the examples we've seen so far seem to allow Fos to remember things that she's forgotten so long as she has the right context. Were she to forget her purpose due to the lost arms, and yet later have something which reminds her there is quite the potential for tragedy. Other than Fos not spreading the things that she learned from Ventricosis to the other gems, there has yet to be any narrative consequence to the loss of memories. If the arms are gone, then I feel like it only makes sense for this round of amnesia to actually alter the story. The things Fos experienced under the sea were known only to her among the gems, and are now forgotten. The other thing that Fos knows that's a secret is Cinnabar's situation and her promise to help, so that is the highest stakes information that she could forget. Lastly, 
This is just a bit of an aside. But doesn't this mean that Fos's arms and legs are on the seafloor, where new gems come from? Will that matter at some later point? Or are they able to be gathered up by our seagoing friend Ventricosis for some potential restoration? Maybe that is impossible, and they are already being beaten into microscopic fragments. But if it is possible, I feel like it sets up an interesting dilemma. If Fos ends up with powerful arms to match her legs, but at the cost of more of herself, would she take the option to be restored back to her weaker form if it meant being reunited to those memories? If she finds herself more capable and suddenly isn't the bane of Jim's society, would she give that up? It may be that I started thinking this way just because I want an excuse for Ventricosis to come back into the story, but it would make a pretty interesting crucible for Fosa's characterization. Without knowing if her limbs are retrievable at all, though, it's kind of a pretty empty speculation. So that is it. I will see you next time when we discuss episode 8 and see if we have the major shakeup that I thought was possible. Title music by Russell J. Crowe, other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash nearlyonred. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.